Not many things get on my nerves more often than bad drivers and their poor driving. (laughs) And even more bothersome than poor driving is reckless, law-breaking, dangerous driving, right? You You all know the drivers who go way over the speed limit and speed by everyone on the road, and they tailgate slow drivers, don't signal where they're going, weaving in and out of traffic, looking for a clear lane, hoping to shave any kind of second off their trip. Whenever someone like that passes me, I shamelessly hope there's a cop around the next corner. <laughs> I, I see them driving crazily, and I hope that they get pulled over and get their cars impounded. And even if they don't get caught, I hope that their recklessness doesn't pay off. I tell you that there is hardly anything more satisfying than having someone blow past you at 30, 40 kilometers faster than you, only for them to get stopped at the same red light as you down the road. <laughs> right? And you, you pull up next to them like the tortoise next to the hare. <laughs> But you all know that sometimes that doesn't happen, right? Sometimes they get the green light and you get the red light. Sometimes they don't gain seconds, they gain minutes and you lose them. And we scream to the heavens, is there no justice in the world? Well, not really, but but it irks us, right? It irks us when they get away with their annoying or dangerous law-breaking. And though this is a fairly trivial thing, it does point to something about us. That we are hardwired for justice. And we want those who do wrong to get what's coming to them. And we want good moral behavior to be rewarded. This is not a wrong desire. This is a natural God-given desire for justice to be done. And so we recoil when injustice happens. It clashes with what we hope to be true about life. We think things should be just. So why aren't they? What's up with that? And we aren't the only ones who grappled with these questions. The Bible actually records someone, we've been studying him lately, Job, who grappled with these. He struggled with these questions about justice with no easy answers in sight. Especially as his friends came to him and kept spewing out unsatisfactory theories about God's justice. So, we're going to join Job once again today as he ponders these things. If you have a Bible, please turn with me to Job chapter 8. If you don't, you can grab one from the pew in front of you. That'll be on page 421. 421, and we'll be in Job chapter 8. But I also believe that as we read these words, we need God's help. We need the Holy Spirit's help this morning. So, as you find your place, once you find your place, would you please bow your heads and pray with me for that. Heavenly Father, I want to ask you this morning that you would speak to us, that you would pour down like rain and and help our eyes to see your truth. Help us to be convicted by it. Help us to be encouraged by it. 
no matter what season of life we're going through, that you would use these words to speak truth to us. We need that this morning, God. So we pray for it now. In Jesus' name, amen. If you haven't been with us, we're now right in the middle of the debates that Job has with his friends about his terrible plight. After he lost his flocks and servants and children and his health in a series of disasters, last time we were in Job, we saw that Job actually felt like God's poisoned arrows had pierced him. That's how he felt. And that was essentially true, as God agreed to the test which stripped Job of everything. Each calamity might have come from evil men or natural disasters or Satan, but ultimately all things did come from God's hand. Job's friends came along to try to comfort him, but as we saw a few chapters back, Eliphaz, the first one, didn't really help at all. And in chapters 6 and 7, Job responds, and he really displays how hopeless he really felt, feeling like he was, that death was inevitable. He even begged God to leave him alone and let him die. Concluding in chapter 7 this way, he says, For now I shall lie in the earth, you will seek me, but I shall not be. Total despair. In chapter 8, another of his friends is going to give it a go. Bildad, known as the Shuhite. And we don't know much about Bildad, though he is likely from modern-day Arabia. And he's a bit more straight-talking, to the point, than Eliphaz was. Says things like they are. So if you imagine Eliphaz is the gentle and tentative Canadian, Bildad's the brash and loud American. Okay? I can say that because I'm both. So He begins this way. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, in verse 1, verse 2, How long... Will you say these things, and the words of your mouth be a great wind? That's a polite start. Job, I I love you, man, but you're being a windbag right now, full of hot air. Then Bildad asks a question that gets right to his main point. Verse 3, does God pervert justice? Or does the Almighty pervert the right? So he's like, come on, Job. All your questions and your doubts are casting doubt on God's justice. It's like you're saying that God could have gotten things wrong, or that he's got the wrong guy, or that he messed things up, or that he's disciplining you unjustly. The answer to Bildad's question, does God pervert justice, is absolutely no. God does not pervert justice. But Bildad felt that Job was accusing God of being unjust or unfair to him. So Bildad felt it was his duty to speak some sense into Job. Verse 4, if your children have sinned against God, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. 
If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. And though your beginning was small, your latter days will be very great. Now, Job's beginning wasn't really that small, but he's probably talking about Job's smallness right now in that moment. But to get to the point, Bildad obviously held to the same simple moral system that Eliphaz did. That God helps good people, and he hurts bad people. That's the, that's the in, in a nutshell. That the better a person you are, the better off you'll be, and vice versa. But these beliefs, as you see, logically led him to some unfortunate con- conclusions. It's like, Job, your kids must have done something really bad. Because look what happened to them. But, on the other hand, if you'll seek God now, your life will most certainly turn around. Bildad's whole speech really revolves around this one main point. It goes this way, that God is just, the godless perish, and the godly prosper. God is perfectly just, and fair. The godless perish and the godly prosper. Guaranteed. Verse 5 and 6. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. Now that sounds like pretty sound advice, right? Like something you might hear in church. Seek God. Plead for mercy. Surely he'll move on your behalf. He'll restore you. One problem with this. Job was already doing this. And yet he, God wasn't restoring Job's prosperity. At least not yet. If you know the end of the story, at the very end of Job, verse 7 might actually sound like a prophecy. When he says, and though your beginning was small, your latter days will be very great. But the fact was, in this moment, the present tense, this point wouldn't have seemed true at all to Job. Nevertheless, Bildad was confident and passionate. God doesn't pervert justice. Therefore, to prove his point, he appeals to the conventional wisdom of the day, which could still pass as conventional wisdom today. Really, there's nothing new under the sun. He says, think of all the traditional moral teachings, what our ancestors, what our fathers taught us. Verse 8, for inquire, please, of bygone ages, consider what the fathers have searched out. For we are but of yesterday and know nothing. For our days on earth are a shadow. Life is short and we're stupid. (laughs) So we should listen to what others have learned in the past. Consider what the fathers have searched out, for we are but of yesterday and know nothing, for our days on earth are a shadow. Will they not teach you and tell you and utter words out of their understanding? And what has tradition taught us, you ask? Exactly what I'm telling you now. God is just, the godless perish, the godly prosper. Here, think of this picture. Verse 11. Can papyrus grow where there is no marsh? Can reeds flourish where there is no water? 
while yet in flower and not cut down, they wither before any other plant. Now, papyrus is an aquatic plant, a reed that grows in riverbanks and swamps. And Bill Dead is like, you can't plant papyrus anywhere but by the water. If you do, say you try to plant it in your backyard or something, it'll die rapidly. It just doesn't work. It withers. And his point is that that is what the wicked are like. And apparently Job, in his mind, transplanted papyrus plants. Verse 13, such are the paths of all who forget God. The hope of the godless shall perish. His confidence is severed and his trust is a spider's web. He leans against his house, but it does not stand. He lays hold of it, but it does not endure. So because God is just, the wicked wither like misplaced, dying plants. Now, Bildad doesn't just give a negative illustration. He also gives a positive one. And once again, he's trying to motivate Job. Get right with God. Come on, Job. Verse 16. Don't see it really in English, but this transitions to a different picture. In verse 16, it says, He is a lush plant before the sun, and his shoots spread over the garden. His roots entwine the stone heap. He looks upon a house of stones. If he is destroyed from his place, then it will deny him, saying, I have never seen you. Behold, this is the joy of his way, and out of the soil others will spring. Behold, God will not reject a blameless man, nor take the hand of evildoers. So in ver- he, he keeps the botanical theme going, but now he's talking about good people. And whereas the godless are like withering water plants planted away from the water, the godly are like lush plants, spreading their roots and their shoots everywhere. The godless path, you might notice, ends in perishing. The godly's path ends in joy. Verse 19, behold, this is the joy of his way. Out of the soil others will spring. Behold, God will not reject a blameless man, nor take the hand of evildoers. Now, that verse seems true enough, except that, again, this didn't really apply to Job. Was Job suffering? Of course. Was God rejecting Job? No. Nevertheless, Bildad makes some lofty promises to Job. If only he comes clean. Verse 21 God will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame and the tent of the wicked will be no more. Don't you want your house to be filled with laughter and joyful whooping and hollering? Then all you got to do is seek God and plead for mercy. And that sums up Bildad's speech. And they ask, what's wrong with his message? Like I said before, a lot of what Job's friends will sound, what they say will sound really good. The same goes with Bildad. A lot of what he says sounds good. But such is the nature of almost all false teaching you or I will encounter, even today. A lot of good mixed together with a little bit of bad which 
corrupts it all. God is love. God is good. We can be forgiven and and get mercy. And therefore, there's no hell. Wrong. Jesus was an amazing man who died for sin. A perfect example of love. But not God. Not. Scripture's good, and God's messages are in it. That verse is mistaken, though. No, you are. See what I mean? A lot of truth, a lot of good things, and a little error ruins it all. So, what was true or false, what was good or bad in in Bildad's message? I already pointed out a couple things. You may notice that Bildad makes a few of the same exact errors that Eliphaz made a few chapters back. Bildad's problem is not with his premise. God is just. That is 100% perfectly true. Okay? The problems arise with his conclusions about how that works out in the here and now. In a few words, his theology was unrealistic and naive. As in reality, we see this all the time, The godless sometimes do prosper. And the godly sometimes do suffer. In eternity, his point's going to be true. But not necessarily here on earth. His beliefs were also presumptuous. Assuming that Job was being disciplined. When he really didn't know the whole story. We were told the whole story at the beginning. Job really was blameless here. But he doesn't know that, so it's presuming that. And even though Bildad mentions mercy, Bildad's advice really was devoid of God's grace. So it was incomplete. In fact, think about this. His advice actually turned God's grace upside down. He felt that the righteous were entitled to God's acting on their behalf. You notice verse 6? If you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation, as if God were indebted to our goodness. He's not. We don't deserve anything, no matter how supposedly good we are. Even Bildad's conclusion, God won't reject the blameless man, was incomplete. As Francis Anderson says, this actually makes Bildad the precursor of those who mock Jesus with the same logic. He trusts in God, let God deliver him. Bildad was effectively preaching a version of the prosperity gospel. That God wants all of his people to be prosperous and blessed now. He's also preaching God's justice as so supreme that it actually overrode all his other attributes, kind of like Islam does today. Yes, God is just, and he is no less than perfectly just, but he is also more than only just. 
And this is one of the main premises of Job's response to Bildad, which comes in chapter 9. And I'm going to sum it up this way. That God is just and sovereign. He grants both to both. (laughs) What I mean by this is that God allows both the godly and the godless to both prosper and perish. Okay, God is just and God is sovereign. He grants both results to both sets of people. Look with me as how Job responds, beginning at chapter 9. Then Job answered and said, Truly, I know that it is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? Now, Job wasn't really agreeing with his friend's points. It was more like, yeah, but... In response to, to Bildad's optimism, really glib optimism, like he said in, in verse 20, Behold, God will not reject the blameless man, nor take the hand of evildoers. Job posed a question, and it was, the, it was actually the same question that Eliphaz had posed to him earlier. Truly I know that it is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? Now, he wasn't agreeing with Eliphaz completely either. He was just expressing his own doubts. And we know that through God's grace, Job was already in the right before God. And we know that through Jesus, it is now possible for all of us to be in the right before God. But at this moment, to Job, that felt impossible. His whole world had collapsed. And in sight of who God actually is, it can seem hopeless to ever measure up. Who's God? Job beautifully tells us in the next few verses. Probably because Bildad's God was incomplete. Verse 3. Well, he says, but who, how can a man be in the right before God? Verse 3. If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. So if you were to play 1,000 games against God, he would win 1,000 times. If you, were to, if you and God were pitted against each other in, a court, in a 1,000 court cases, he would win 1,000 times. If you asked God 1,000 questions, he would have 1,000 answers. His winning percentage is perfect. His wisdom's impeccable. His power's omnipotent. Verse 4. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? Literally, it says, Who has hardened himself against him and remained in one piece? Again, no one wins against God. He defines wisdom and strength. And for proof of this, just look at creation. Verse 5. He who removes mountains and they know it not, when he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun and it does not rise, who seals up the stars who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea, who made the bear and the Orion, the Pleiades and the chambers of the south, who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond 
number. And what a powerful picture of God's sovereign might. He could flatten or overturn mountains on a whim. He could shake the earth so it could spin out of orbit. He could darken the sun so that it never rose again or forbid the stars to shine. But it's not only chaotic power here. He only says he alone stretched out the universe from one end to the other. He trampled out the ocean, creating its tides and waves. He formed each constellation of stars and how they look from Earth. Truly, Job was right when he echoed what he had heard earlier, the majestic words, Who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number? Amen. But then Job says, Even though God is powerful, sometimes he can't be perceived. In verse 11, Behold, he passes by me and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. God is mysterious. He's also unstoppable and ultimately unquestionable. Verse 12, Behold, he snatches away. Who can turn him back? Who will say to him, What are you doing? God will not turn back his anger. Beneath him bowed the helpers of Rahab. Rahab was a mythical evil monster of the day. So, but God, he says, is sovereign over everything, even evil. For Job and for anyone else who undergoes suffering, these truths weren't just theoretical. He knew them firsthand, personally. Behold, he snatches away. Who can turn him back? Who will say to God, what are you doing? So based on who God is, what could Job realistically do to affect God? Nothing, really. He's he's answering Bildad's assertions that we can somehow control God with our morality. Right? So he asks, verse 14, How then can I answer him, choosing my words with him? Though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. So notice, Job still believes that he was in the right. But he feels hopeless. Francis Anderson says, He has no doubt that he's eligible for vindication, but he knows he cannot secure it. He cannot summon God using the simple formulas recommended by his friends. Job's God is altogether too great for such easy management. Now, we somehow easily develop the mindset that we're good people, and therefore we've earned God's favor. That is a miserably incorrect way to view the universe. We gotta get somehow get this through our thick skulls that God is so far above us and we are 
so far below him. He owes us jack squat. If God decided to drop kick the earth into the sun tomorrow, that would be his right. We are not generally good people. We are fallen, sinful creatures at heart. But even if we were pretty good people, like Job was, we deserve nothing from God. All we can do is what Job decides he must do. In verse 15, I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. The word is also means judge. I must appeal for mercy. We have to throw ourselves at the feet of this almighty God and appeal for mercy. Now, Job keeps using common courtroom language to describe things, if you notice. Contend, answer, appeal, judge, summon. Does it again, verse 16. He says, If I summoned God and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. Job was like, This is preposterous to even think about. If I summoned God to court today to hear my arguments and, and to deliver his verdict to me, how can my words make any impact on him? It's an impossibility. But with, with the way I feel, I'd find it difficult to believe he's even listening to me. Verse 17, For he crushes me with a tempest, and he multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not let me get my breath, but fills me with bitterness. These are pretty terrible and heartbreaking words for Job to say. We sing that God is sovereign over us. And that's usually a pretty comforting thought. But Job was feeling crushed under God's sovereignty. Verse 19. If it is a contest of strength, behold, he is mighty. If it is a matter of justice, who can summon him? Though I am in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless, he would prove me perverse. He's like, no matter what, no matter how innocent I am, I'm far worse than God. If I were in court with him, my own mouth would betray me. He'd find me guilty. Now, I should say, not everything that Job says here is necessarily perfectly accurate or true. We know this because of the story that God told us at the beginning. But it's honest. Is it not? It is raw in its honesty. How I felt. And his heart's attitude was in the right place. That he was far less than God. I tell you, we should never feel that like we can control God. He is far, far above us. And this should affect the way we view everything good or bad that comes into our lives. If we start thinking that 
God isn't as great as we thought he was. Or we start thinking that we have a right to judge God's ways, like we're his judge. Or we pridefully maintain that we're all that. No one can question us. What we're essentially doing is claiming sovereignty for ourselves. And that is insanity. Job goes... (laughs) Yes, God is just. Absolutely. But God is also sovereign. And he makes both men both prosper and perish. And I'm proof. I'm proof of that. Verse 21. I am blameless. I regard not myself. I loathe my life. I'm blameless, and I loathe my life. Two things that did not and could not go together in Bildad's worldview. Job was really exposing Bildad's false dichotomy. Verse 22, it is all one, therefore I say, he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. It's not either or, it's both and. You may be godless, and God may crush you now. Or he may wait till later. And you may be godly, but God may have you go through some intense suffering. Both good and bad happen to us all. As Jesus said, God makes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends his rain on the just and the unjust. Now, the next verses sound harsh. And again, I don't think we could say that these are 100% true. Verse 23, when disaster brings sudden death, God mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. If it is not he, who then is it? Now, was God actually mocking Job and his troubles? No, we know that. But again, that's what Job felt like. Christopher Ash comments, he says, Job knows there's something terribly wrong about saying that God actively brings injustice on earth. But if he is to hold on to the sovereignty of God, he cannot see what other conclusion he can reach. Who else can act sovereignly on the earth? It's a terrible thing that Job says, but we can see why he says it. From his viewpoint, it is hard to see what else he can say. And again, if nothing else, Job's brutally honest. (laughs) Now, I'm not denying that this may bother some of you. God's sovereignty can be a hard pill to swallow. But, if we deny that God is in control, the alternatives are far scarier. He says, if it is not he, who then is it? It's not God in control, who is it? Random blind chance? Satan? Us? That'd be a scary thought. No, everything that We know about God from Scripture tells us God is sovereign. 
He is behind the steering wheel. He is guiding things for his glory and for our good. Whether or not we feel like it's for our good, God tells us to trust him that it is. God is sovereign. And guess what? We're not. We need to be constantly reminded of this. We've got this God complex in our head. Job was learning or relearning this point firsthand, which it really can be depressing at times and it can be really comforting at others. But one of the absolute best results of suffering is that it reminds us that we're not in control. God is. God is just. He is sovereign. He prospers and he tears down all kinds of people. And there's nothing that we can do to change that. God is just and sovereign and there is nothing we can do to change that. At this point, Job begins listing the things he cannot do. Things he has no control over. First, he can't slow down the speed of life. Look in verse 25. He says, My days are swifter than a runner. They flee away. They see no good. They go by like skiffs of reed, like an eagle swooping on the prey. He uses three straight metaphors there. A fast sprinter, a speedy raft that would glide down a river, and an attacking eagle. So, think Usain Bolt, or a speedboat, or a bird of prey grabbing a rabbit or a fish. Okay? And they blaze by you fast, or it happens in an instant, suddenly and quickly, and then it's over. Just like, that's life. That's what my life is like. Can't slow it down. Second thing Job can't control, his life's circumstances. Verse 27, if I say I will forget my complaint, I will put off my sad face and be of good cheer. I become afraid of all my suffering, for I know you will not hold me innocent. He feels that it's hopeless for him to even put on a brave face or think positive thoughts. Because even if he were to do that, worse things just keep on happening to him. Third thing, Job has no control over his own moral purity or cleanliness. Verse 29, I shall be condemned. Why then do I labor in vain? If I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, that's soap, yet you will plunge me into a pit and my own clothes will abhor me. How would you feel if you took a nice long shower or bath in the morning and then went outside and immediately you fell into a mud puddle? Or worse yet, a sewer. If you can imagine that, that's how Job feels about his situation. Feels hopeless. That even if he were completely clean, he'd be plunged into a pit. He wouldn't just hate wearing filthy clothes. His clothes would hate to be worn by him. And my own clothes will abhor me. So you're getting a sense of Job's emotional state. Hopeless and powerless to change anything. And why can't we change God or control God in any way? Not to mention time or circumstances or purity. Verse 32. For... God is not a man 
as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. Francis Anderson says again, This is the persistent problem, the real problem of the book of Job, not the problem of suffering to be solved intellectually by supplying a satisfactory answer, which explains why it happened, but the attainment of a right relationship with God, which makes existence in suffering holy and acceptable. For God is not a man that I, as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. It's like Job wishes to summon God to court to answer his charges. But that's a fool's wish. God's so different from us, so above us, that we have no hope of even getting to the court. The chasm between us and God is unbridgeable. So Job thinks, if only it weren't this way. If only it weren't this way. Verse 33, There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. Let him take his rod away from me. Let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him, for I am not so in myself. If only it were this way, verse 33, there's no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on both of us. The New Living Translation puts it, if only there were a mediator who could bring us together, but there is none. Do you know what an arbiter or an arbitrator or a mediator is? They're dispute resolvers, peacemakers. Okay, for example... When the Ottawa Senators tried to re-sign some of their players recently, they'd offer a certain amount of money to their player. We will pay you $1 million to play for us. And the player would counter-offer. They'd say, no, actually, I think I deserve to be paid $3 million. So how do they resolve the difference of opinion, their dispute? They go to arbitration. And in arbitration, a neutral third party comes in and decides the fair outcome of the case. He looks at all the facts and all the numbers, and they decide something like, you know, we decide that he really should be paid $2 million. So pay him that. Job was like, I have a dispute with God right now, but there's no one to settle the issue. If only there was an arbiter or a mediator who could. If there is no mediator between God and man. There is no hope of peace with God. We can't even approach him and hope to live to tell the tale. He's far too holy. Therefore, it is a really good thing that Jesus came along. In order to properly understand and represent God's side, any mediator or arbiter would have to have been divine. And in order to properly understand and represent us, they'd also have to be human. And Jesus was both. God in human flesh. 
First Timothy 2 tells us there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Now, that means that the hopelessness that comes through in Job 9 had an expiration date. The date Jesus died. Jesus is the perfect arbiter that Job could only wish existed. Bridging the unbridgeable chasm. Jesus, in Job's word, Jesus laid hands on heaven and earth and brought peace between God and man. And when God delivered the official courtroom verdict... The verdict was God is just. But because of Christ, man can be justified. We can be made righteous. Paul tells us in Romans, And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I ask you, have you come to put your faith in Jesus alone? Not in yourself? Not in your own goodness? Do you still think that you can earn something from Almighty God? Or do you yearn for a mediator? Someone to come between God's holiness and His sovereignty and our impurity and sinfulness. Someone to go between. Yearn no longer. Work no longer for this. Put your hope and your trust in Jesus, our mediator. The one who died and rose again for you. I pray desperately that you would receive his grace today. God is just. And God is sovereign. And there's nothing we can do to change that. However, we must be careful about what conclusions this truth leads us to. For example, God is sovereignly in control, but the Bible does not teach us that our choices are meaningless. Okay? We may not understand how, but God's sovereignty does not lead to determinism, where we are robots or puppets just following predetermined actions. Somehow, God is both totally sovereign and we are totally responsible moral agents. Job reveals in another wrong conclusion that we could reach, and that is extreme pessimism or cynicism. With this, Powerlessness should not lead to total hopelessness. 
powerlessness should not lead to hopelessness, even if or when we feel hopeless. The fact is, God is just and sovereign, and we can't change that. And yet, and yet, we still long for God's just deliverance. Right? Even if we're powerless in the light of God's providence, we still long for it. We still long for his justice, for his deliverance. The whole of chapter 10 is another lament of Job's as he turns to complain directly to God again. You might think, well, isn't complaining to God in prayer impertinent or disrespectful? Not necessarily. As Leighton Talbert reminds, saying one thing while thinking or feeling another is hypocrisy. Got to be honest. Follow Job's example. Fight off hypocrisy even in our prayers. We're going to, as we read this through really quick, we'll hear familiar refrains again. I hate my life. I don't get it. Leave me alone. Let me die. But as I read it, I want you to try to see through Job's complaints to see what he's hoping for. Because though Job says he's hopeless, he's not. He is desperately longing for certain things. Okay, we're going to read through this, starting verse 1. He says, I loathe my life. I will give free utterance to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend against me. Does it, not, does it seem good to you to oppress, to despise the work of your hands and favor the designs of the wicked? Have you eyes of flesh? Do you see as man sees? Are your days as the days of man, or your years as man's years, that you seek out my iniquity and search for my sin, although you know that I'm not guilty and there is none to deliver out of your hands? Your hands fashioned and made me, And now you have destroyed me altogether. Remember that you have made me like clay, and will you return me to the dust? Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese? You clothed me with skin and flesh. You knit me together with bones and sinews. You have granted me life when steadfast love, and your care has preserved my spirit. Yet these things you hid in your heart. I know that this was your purpose. If I sin, you watch me and do not acquit me of my iniquity. If I am guilty, woe to me. If I am in the right, I cannot lift up my head, for I am filled with disgrace and look on my affliction. And were my head lifted up, you would hunt me like a lion and again work wonders against me. You renew your witnesses against me and increase your vexation toward me. You bring fresh troops against me. Why did you bring me out of the womb? Would that I had died before any eye had seen me, and were as though I had not been carried from the womb to the grave. Are not my days few? Then cease and leave me alone, that I may find a little cheer before I go. And I shall not return to the land of darkness and deep shadow, the land of gloom like thick darkness, like deep shadow without any order, where light is as thick darkness." Heavy stuff. Job, you can see, he feels that God was condemning and oppressing 
and contending against him. Whether or not these things were completely true, he's basically saying, I'm damned if I do and damned if I don't. Right? Verse 15. He says, If I am guilty, woe to me. And if I am in the right, I cannot lift up my head. For I am filled with disgrace and look on my affliction. So he feels like he's being hunted like a lion. The lions we've seen in the news lately, right? And were my head lifted up, you would hunt me like a lion. And again, work wonders against me. You renew your witnesses against me and increase your vexation toward me. You bring fresh troops against me. He feels like incriminating witnesses keep getting called to the stand against him. Or that God keeps sending army after army in a relentless attack against him. And yet, in the midst of his despair, did you notice Job's longings? What did Job want here? Besides just wanting to die. That really just exposed a a desire for relief anyway. He longed for relief. He longed for peace. He longed for an end to his pain. But also, in verse 2, I will say to God, do not condemn me. So Job longed to not be condemned. For salvation, in other words. He also longed for understanding. Continuing in verse 2, Let me know why you contend against me. Does it seem good to you to oppress, to despise the work of your hands and favor the designs of the wicked? He believed that God loved him. So he didn't understand how God would ever want to hurt him. So he longed for understanding. He longed that God wouldn't understand him as well. Verse 4, have you eyes of flesh? Do you see as man sees? Are your days as the days of man? Are your years as man's years? He's longing for empathy, for God to relate to him. He appealed here to God's goodness in creating him as fearfully and wonderfully made. Verse 8, your hands fashioned and made me, and now you've destroyed me altogether. So you created me amazingly. Why destroy me now? What's the point? Verse 12, you have granted me life and steadfast love, and your care has preserved my spirit. Yet these things you hid in your heart. You've blessed me so much, giving me life and love. So why? Christopher Ash says, in that question, in that address, there lies hope. Whatever Job says, the fact that he says it to God and says it with such vehemence suggests that he knows he has not reached the end of his quest for meaning. And you sense the heart of Job's prayer here? 
There is a deep longing for deliverance. In verse 7, And there is none to deliver out of your hand. He may feel hopeless about there being deliverance, but he still prays. He prays for fairness and justice, for love, for mercy, for empathy, for peace, for salvation. Things that he knew he would only ever find in the just, sovereign, loving God. You have granted me life and steadfast love, and your care has preserved my spirit. We cannot forget that God, in his sovereign love, never stopped caring for Job. Even though Job didn't see how, God was still there, just waiting to act with justice. Like I said earlier, we are people that are hardwired for justice. We long for justice. And so when we see things, we don't see things as being just, we should run to God's throne in that moment. The only one who is perfectly just, who is sovereign, and who lovingly cares for us. In fact, his love is the only reason that though we really have no right to question him, He welcomes us to contend with his justice, to wrestle with it, like Job does here. He welcomes that. Welcomes us to his throne. Welcomes our prayers. Welcomes our complaints. Because... Since Jesus came as God and man, he knows what we go through, what we feel. And because no matter what we say or do, he'll come out on top anyway. One thousand times out of one thousand times. And it will be indisputably for his glory and for our good. Let's pray. God, may we see these truths. May we understand them. May we trust you in the good and the bad. That you are sovereign, that you are just, and that you care for us. May we hold on to these truths. In Jesus' name, amen.